What's up guys, it is Fitter Food Radio, this is episode 112, it's me, it's Keris and once again we have the Fitter Food favourite doctor, Dr Tommy Wood, how are you mate? I'm great, thanks. Uh, great to be back as well. For the for a hundredth and second time. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. And you guys have probably done more than 10 episodes without me. But you're just so good, mate. We just can't get enough of you. <laughs> we can't get enough of you. You actually have no idea what you're doing today, do you, Tommy? This is why, or one of the reasons why I love coming on your podcast is because you'll never tell me what you're going to ask me about in advance, so I don't have to worry about preparing anything. So it'll just be, it's raw and unfiltered. It's raw raw organic free range <laughs> content you can't you can't beat that yeah well we thought we'd mix it up a little bit this time you know go a bit political talk about oh, Bre- brexit trump <laughs> <laughs> why not <laughs> uh, you know let's not go there that's for sure that's um well actually i'll tell you what we did want to speak about is um you did a talk last year in iceland it was at the icelandic health symposium Oh yeah, that was uh, two years ago now, 2016. Yeah, I oh, was it? Okay, I yeah, just on, on YouTube it says the video was. Uh, oh yeah, it took ages for that. It took like almost a year for that thing to be uh, processed and put out. So yeah. Okay, so two years ago then, time flies, eh? Because I actually remember you wanted to go to that. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. Didn't you? What's so funny about this talk? It's a very good talk, Tommy. I really enjoyed it. Sent it to Matt. He really enjoyed it. And then this afternoon, he said, "What are we talking to Tommy about?" I said, "We're going to talk about." reversing and preventing chronic disease he said no we're not we're talking about the youtube video that he did <laughs> so you didn't actually look at the title did you no, no. but he really enjoyed the talk where he's well, he good. would never watch a video that was labeled <laughs> preventing and reversing chronic yeah. disease i'm not interested in that <laughs> but no it was a really good talk mate and i did a talk a couple of weeks ago now in birmingham at the nec it was the mind body spirit expo I did like an hour-long talk talking about like fit food principles and the paleo-ish lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. And I actually um, stole, I say stole, I, <laughs> I gave you credit. You know, right. I didn't just swipe it, um, but I stole your movement <laughs> snacks thing. You know, when you spoke oh, yeah. about your movement snacks and I was like, that's brilliant, I'm having that. So I suppose we should introduce what Tommy did speak about in a nutshell, and then we can delve a little bit deeper if that's all right, mate. That was the plan. Of course, yeah. I mean, obviously, that that movement snacks bit was obviously from the section where you spoke about daily movement and increasing your daily movement. And what I thought was interesting was when you spoke about those people that are actually active individuals from a training perspective, you know, i.e. they train in the gym or whatever quite frequently, but actually outside of that exercise window, are really quite sedentary compared to maybe someone that doesn't consciously exercise but might just move more across the day. And it was then that you kind of said, you know, throw some movement sacks into the equation, you know, maybe like set your alarm and just, I don't know, go for a walk around the block or go up and down the stairs however many times, blah, blah, blah. People are just so confused about how much exercise they should be doing, what type. And and often the go-to is, is is what Matt just said, to go to the gym four times a week. And what you actually presented at that talk was some research saying it's not as effective as, you know, actually just being more active throughout the day. And I suppose what would be quite nice to, uh, for you to, to kind of give our listeners an idea of is what is a nice balance between doing a bit of gym work and a bit of movement and what should they prioritise if their goal is you know, not to run a marathon or be, you know, be, do an Ironman competition, but actually just optimal health and longevity. Yeah, 
So there's a load of stuff that can come out of that. I guess at its most basic, if you think about the the movement snacks thing, and most of this research comes from, say, the type 2 diabetes research. So if you're looking at ways to improve your blood sugar control, which is important for everybody, not just diabetics, you see better blood sugar control if people, say, every hour go and do five minutes of movement, and that could be a brisk walk, it could be some push-ups, it could be some, you know, some bodyweight squats. Those guys see better blood sugar control than people who go and sit on a bike or on the treadmill for an hour in the gym, but then don't move the rest of the day. So, you know, if you're particularly thinking about long-term health and then blood sugar control is a big part of that, then that frequent movement, and it doesn't need to be particularly high intensity, what we might think of as high intensity, like, you know, sprints or actual weightlifting, uh, just needs to be movement, right? You're just getting those muscles moving and then they're, they're ready to take up blood glucose and they do that without insulin uh, when you've been moving them. So that's really important. Other parts that come out from that are when you are training heavily, like you're going to the gym or doing a, a hard workout of, of some description, your body basically adapts to make you less likely to move the rest of the time. So this is the difference between what we call the additive and constrained models of physical activity. But basically what that means is, in general, what people think is that if I go to the gym and I burn 800 calories on the treadmill, I have burned 800 more calories today. But in reality, that doesn't happen. So what happens is up to about 200 calories, 250 calories above what you would normally expend during the day, you can add that on through exercise. When you then go above that 250, what your body does is it starts turning down everything else. So it makes you less likely to move spontaneously. It makes you a little bit lazier. It makes, you know, it tries to conserve energy through sort of turning down other pathways. And so when you then spend a lot, a lot of time, you know, working hard in the gym, you're less likely to move the rest of the time. And we know that there are things like, you know, prolonged sitting on its own may be damaging. So if you're going to train really hard in the gym and then just sit all day, those things actually start to uh, counteract one another. And, and you can see that again, you know, the data is never going to be perfect. But if people are, regardless of how much exercise that people are doing, if they're sitting for more than eight hours a day, and definitely more than 12 hours a day, then, you know, your risk of uh, all cause mortality starts to go up. So there's this benefit from just not sitting. And if you're training really hard, that might make you sit more. So there's uh, a need to kind of find a balance between the two. So when you're thinking about the exercise that's most important for long-term health. What it kind of turns out to be is, uh, again, you sort of, if we're looking at, I look at data on all-cause mortality. So basically, what makes you the least likely to die? It's the easiest metric we can use, right, if we're trying to live a long and healthy life. Like, not being dead is usually a good start. So um, it's, it's about 30 to 45 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity. And in the research, that basically means a brisk walk. So 30 to 45 minutes of brisk walking every day. It doesn't need to be more than that. I read somewhere that there is no benefit to doing more. That was so if people are like yeah, trying so, to go, oh, I want to do two hours, three hours, it's nice, but there's no benefit to it, is there? Yeah, basically diminishing returns, we'll call it that. So if you wanted to perform at a specific sport, you'll probably need to train more than that. If you want to have a specific time in a marathon or deadlift a certain amount, you're probably going to need to dedicate more time to your training than that. But if you're just trying to live a long and healthy life, you know, that's the point of diminishing returns. So if we're thinking about 30 to 45 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity every day, that should definitely be mainly brisk walking. 
And then, you know, two to three times a week, that should be lifting some weights because we know that some kind of resistance training doesn't need to be with the weights. It can be whatever it is that you like to use to create resistance because we know that muscle strength and muscle size, and again, you don't have to be a bodybuilder, but just maintaining some muscle mass as you get older is super important for long-term health. If you are brisk walking and, you know, doing some resistance exercise and that gives you 30 to 45 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity every day and then just not sitting all day, you know, that's pretty much the best combination of things for health and longevity, if that's what we're aiming for. What's interesting about this, though, is aren't there also studies saying that when people do do a lot of things like running, cardiovascular exercise, that they don't tend to lose weight? And when they were looking at why that might be, it's because there's kind of like diet complacency or they just overconsume basically appetite or regulates they overconsume calories as well. And I think part of the reason that what you've just presented isn't particularly sexy to a lot of people is they use exercise to basically eat a lot more than they should do. Or, you know, they enjoy the fact that they can kind of go crazy with whatever it is they like to overindulge in at the weekend. Exactly. And it comes back to that saying the difference between what we think exercise does in terms of calorie burn, what it actually does. So if you want to remain weight stable, pretty much regardless of how, and you can hack around this, right? So people do find ways to expend a lot of energy uh, doing some kind of exercise and then moving continuously so they're preventing their body from sort of doing that down regulation that it wants to do. Most people don't do that. So at most, for the average person, it's a couple of hundred calories maybe that you're expending extra through exercise. So if you want to remain weight stable, you can eat that extra. But just because the treadmill said you burned a thousand calories doesn't mean you can then go and eat a thousand calories of ice cream. Sorry, Matt. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I always say most people massively overestimate how many calories they've burned and they Mm -hmm. tend to underestimate how many calories they've consumed. Let's say they've gone to the gym and they've worked their ass off. Fair enough. You know, yet the harder you work, more calories burnt, blah, blah, blah. But... I think people associate that feeling of, God, oh, you know, I, I, I worked that hard, I almost threw up or, you know, my muscles are throbbing and I'm sweating like mad. Like, I think because they tend to have that sensation for quite a while after, you know, of like the achy muscles, tired, fatigued, they see it as almost like their body's still this, you know, like this fat burning machine. And you you know, that kind of like the whole thing with like Epoch and everyone's like that yeah. afterburn effect, like, oh yeah, I did weights today. Um, my, meta- my metabolism's on fire, you know, pass the croissants, <laughs> it's fine. Sometimes when you actually sit down with someone and go, look, realistically, this is how many calories you probably burnt in that session. Ignore what the machine told you because it's probably wrong. How could it be possibly accurate? You know, there's so many variables that decide how many calories you burnt in that 30 minutes, whatever it may be. And then people are just almost like horrified that you've kind of like given them straight facts and they're all of a sudden like, bloody hell, well, that explains a lot. You know, that's why I couldn't get away with, you know, all those extra calories I was taking on supposedly thinking I was still in an energy deficit. This is one point I did want to ask you about, Tommy. We have some clients who do things like, um, you know, these kind of long cycle rides where they're out for like six hours at the weekend. and they do tend to lose a lot of weight, but they keep one in particular, one client we're working with has a lot of belly fat. I'm kind of a bit loath to say that he's, he is, he must be in a calorie deficit because he's losing weight from his arms and legs. 
but not around his middle. And part of me is like, is this because we talk about kind of visceral fat being associated with inflammatory processes? Is it that he's just doing too much cycling? And he's addicted to it, completely addicted, isn't mm. he? He goes out like miles, you know, he's like literally hundreds of miles a week. And yeah. But he has this kind of little you know, there's this kind of central fat and we've debated it so much because he's lost weight from everywhere else. And it doesn't, it's just, is it just that stubborn bit of fat to go? Or is it that this is that now because he's got pro-inflammatory stuff going on from way too much cardio? What he needs to do is try um, skinny coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll do the job. Do you, do you have skinny coffee over there, mate? Tommy drinks the exact opposite, I think. <laughs> I just drink black coffee. Wait, what's skinny? Is is, is skinny is like when when it's like the fat-free milk or is it something no, else? No, no, it's a, an actual... It's a new thing. It's a fat loss product that's revolutionising <sighs> the fat loss industry. Right. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, it's called skinny coffee and it's being pushed as like a fat loss coffee. What's in it? coffee and right. then a, few, a, uh, a couple of other bits and bobs but it's all this kind all of right. like you know oh, a bit of this green coffee or whatever it's called green you know there's you know extract, yeah, yeah. And, like, but at the end of the day they're just it comes with a if people are replacing meals with a freaking coffee well, of course they're gonna bloody lose weight <laughs> <laughs> do, do you know what i mean like but but yeah that's that's what's going on over here mate i'm looking it up now you've uh peaked my uh okay yeah it's like weights it's like um what, what was that? Oh, uh, slim fast. It's like slim fast, but coffee. Yeah. So, so your guy, it's, it's difficult to tell. Um, it may just be that that's the the last thing to go. You're right. It's it would also be useful to know whether it's subcutaneous or or visceral. Right? Is it a soft belly or a hard belly? That's usually the easiest way to to figure that out. The one thing that I was going to say, based on what you were saying earlier, is that interestingly, that kind of moderate, I'll call it moderate intensity, like jogging. Or I guess what would what you do on on those long bike rides? That kind of intensity exercise seems to be the worst for then increasing hunger later on. If it's just like a walk, it doesn't seem to increase hunger. If it's like super intense, it doesn't seem to increase hunger. But that that kind of intensity seems to mess with your society a, a bit more. So that can can play a play a role in terms of what people end up eating after exercise. But yeah, the, there's certainly a, a a possibility that so prolonged periods of time. This is I, I've spent a bit of time talking about. I've, given a couple of talks on it this year, but sort of prolonged endurance exercise really affects blood flow to the gut. So depending on then what you're eating, what's going on in the gut, that can certainly cause some issues afterwards. So potentially all of that could be could be playing a role. I would, you know, if people are chronic endurance exercises, one of the first things I do is to get them to do less of that and more lifting weights. And that usually seems to help with balancing body composition. It's a simple answer, but it's not easy to do. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It no, no. I mean, it's... I was going to say, what, what advice do you give if it's more for kind of mental health that people are doing it? And obviously there's kind of no... Obviously, they, they literally will say no when we often say you, you need to cut back on the cardio or cut back on the... They need the endorphin high, but they also need the sweat. They need... You know, walking doesn't cut it for them. No. This is the reason why we now employ Simon Marshall as our performance psychologist, because there's much deeper stuff going on than I can fix with some deadlifts. Then it all becomes in terms of how deep do you want to dig into the psyche of exercise addiction and why that has come about and what it is that potentially people are escaping or people don't want to think about or people are avoiding. That's a huge part of of what we see and have you know having somebody who's actually trained in that area has really helped us uh, work with our clients because it's, it's become a big part of what we see. Well, it is crazy, isn't it? Because 
you know, at the end of the day, like there are people genuinely addicted to exercise in, in the, you know, if they go without, they start going absolutely bonkers. You've been there. I've been there to a I've certain extent. I've been there. Don't get me wrong. I've yeah, been like, because yeah. I've been listening to a lot of uh, Russell Brand stuff lately, because obviously, you know, he speaks about addiction quite a lot. And what he's quite good at saying is he's like, what they're addicted to is irrelevant. Like addiction is addiction and it's there to fill a void. It's there to fill something that they see as missing. And it's and that's the, the 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 magic moment is when you can find out what that is and get to get to the bottom of it. Like why are you using I suppose, you know, like why are you using exercise? Why are you using drugs? Why are you using alcohol? Yeah, to, but I, I think to, the hard to, thing about exercise, and this also goes for even orthorexia eating well, is that you can justify it much easier exactly. than you can yeah. other addictions. Yeah, of course you can. But it is still oh, uh, yeah, no, an yeah, unhealthy yeah. addiction, obsession, whatever you want to call it, yeah. that is having a negative effect on your health. Granted, you know, a binge on a treadmill is probably going to cause you less harm than a binge on drink and drugs. But but nonetheless, you know, it's as an example. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that, 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 wasn't, probably... that wasn't a question. That no. was just <laughs> a statement. <laughs> me, you know, me, me mate Russell. <laughs> we did a, a podcast yesterday, was a couple of days ago, Tommy, where Matt was supposed to interview me. He asked me about two questions in an hour. The rest, he was just actually talking at me about his point of view on things. It's all about it was, me. It was the, you are the worst interviewer. You, you do not know this by now. <laughs> you don't actually ask anyone questions. We've been together 11 years and still you don't know. It's all 112 about me. podcasts later. Yeah. Just it's all coming out. It's like he, he comes on a podcast just to kind of give his thoughts. And then, <laughs> no. anyway, on to... What's the, you know, the saying? It says, uh, you know, that's, that's, enough, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> <laughs> so we should probably talk about stress in terms of reversing, preventing chronic disease. And this is quite interesting. I went into an office and I was talking about the role of kind of, you know, lifestyle changes people could make. And somebody said to me, I've got high blood sugar. What do you think it is? My diet's really good. I do exercise. I play golf, you know, this, that and the other. And, and I kind of mentioned a few causes of, you know, what might cause high blood sugars. And I said, it's not always about the food. It can be lack of sleep. It can be uh, inflammation in the body, infection. It could be calorie excess or it could be stress. And he straight away just went, it's definitely stress. But what was interesting about that is I thought, yes, maybe it is. But people love to also just very quickly blame stress for mm. things. And, you know, when you kind of, when you did your talk, it was really interesting because we have so much control over stress, but we don't actually realise it. So um, I thought it'd be really helpful if you could explain some of the things as in the physiological things that stress does to the body, but also what's your kind of thoughts on people addressing it rather than just blaming it all the time because it's easy to to blame it stress is one of the is one of the hardest things to deal with because it's so difficult to pin down the thing that i always come back to and it doesn't mean that i have i have all the answers but the thing i always come back to is that i can't remember where i, I heard this there's, there's a book called the myth of stress and it's the fact that you know there is no such thing as, as stress right that's the point is it's how you respond to stresses it's entirely within your control. And the example that I often use is imagine you're sat in traffic, right? There's literally nothing you can do about it at that point. Some people get super stressed because they're going to be late to work. 
and maybe this is every day they're sat in traffic and every day the traffic stresses them out. Whereas the other option is that you know that traffic is a part of your day and there's nothing that you can do about it. So why are you getting stressed about it? And that's, you know, again, it sort of boils it down to something that's a lot easier. Um, you know, it's simple to say that, but it's not easy to do. There are things in your life that are going to be stressful or there are st- potential stressors and then it's how you respond to them. And, you know, there's so much stuff that we can lump into this. So there's all kinds of, so we are increasingly seeing people who have um, abusive uh, relationships or parenting, particularly when they're kids. And then this sort of manifests in terms of how they're then striving for success or um, having, you know, certain avoidant behaviors as they get older, because, you know, it's basically all the downstream effect from that. So, that's, you know, it's a, it's a long term stressor that's, that sits with them for, for long periods of time. Then, you know, anything in terms of your environment, your job, your family, you know, there's a lot of people who have issues, uh, stress around money, financial stability, pretty much anything can cause stress. And, you know, some of it is very different, you know, unlike sitting in traffic, some of it is very difficult to control. And it's not, and, you know, finding ways to then deal with that becomes becomes very important. But you can look at the physiological manifestations of this fairly easily. So you can assess people's levels of stress and you can, you know, like questionnaires are usually the way you do that. And then you can look at things like cortisol levels. That's, that's a, a popular one. But then you can also look at various inflammatory pathways, see that those get upregulated in people that have high levels of stress. And then you can look at their disease outcomes. So there's, uh, I think, one study that I mentioned in this talk was about job stress. You know, how stressed are you uh, in your job? And actually, the risk then of health issues uh, was increased with increasing socioeconomic status. So, like people who are very powerful, very well off, and have a high amount of job stress, they, you know, they end up doing uh, almost the worst. Which is interesting because usually high levels of stress and and poor health outcomes are associated with low. Um, socioeconomic status. So there's like a lot of interacting factors there. Uh, but then, you know, we can look at things like cardiovascular disease and obesity. All of those seem to correlate with the amount of uh, stress that we're exposed to. I think another one that I I mentioned was was diet stress, which is a really interesting one. This was, I think they, there was a, it was a study where they, they took, I think it was, um, I think it was college students here in the US, female college students. And then they looked at uh, the amount of restraint they feel like there is in their diet, you know, so constantly, you know, how much you constantly worrying about what you're eating, checking new nutrition labels, does it have gluten in it? You know, is this going to be good for me? You know, how much are you restraining yourself and worrying about your diet? And then they sort of split those women into those who have low restraint and those who have high restraint. And uh, those who had high restraint were eating fewer calories doing more exercise, but had higher cortisol and didn't weigh any less, right? So basically, the thesis is that the stress of worrying about their diet was actually counteracting a lot of the other good stuff that they're doing, uh, which is, I mean, I can't prove it, but that certainly would, would make sense. So all of these things kind of feed into that. And then... Think about what social media is doing as well with that. I I must have had about four clients this week where it was like they'd made these huge assumptions between if I eat meat, I'm going to get cancer. I need to be ketogenic for this, that and the other. It was almost like every single diet going got mentioned at some point linked to a health outcome, like I've got carb phobia or something. And it was all 
massive amounts of overwhelm with so little education about the pro like just did not understand the process and these are you know educated people it's really you know mm. yeah I, but but literally it was almost panic about things they'd seen on social media kind of you know scaring them about the choices they're making it's literally one of the worst things i, I just don't know i learned a term that i really like now which i, I realized that i have particularly with regards to Twitter and Instagram and now Facebook. I mean, I barely use any of them anymore. And it's JOMO, joy of missing out. And I I get joy in the fact that I'm missing out on what's happening on social media. Genuinely, (laughs) I love it. And my life is so much richer for it. And, you know, I used to, I used to use those platforms because, you know, I follow a lot of people and they post a lot of science and there's a lot of stuff out there that I want to read and I want to know about. And so it was less, uh, for me, it was less comparing myself to others. It was more, oh, you know, there's more that I should be reading. There's more that I should be knowing. But it's essentially exactly the same thing. And not having to expose yourself to that for, I mean, what, I maybe do a few minutes a week nowadays. The amount that my life has improved because of it is is huge. So, yeah, I didn't mention social media in that talk, but that's a, that's a huge part of it. Comparing yourself to others always more that you can know. And it's, you know, it's designed to give you the perfect amount of dopamine. You know, you, you need to scroll through. And as you scroll, the anticipation increases, the dopamine increases, dopamine increases. And then, and then you see the thing that you want. You know, dopamine is there to drive you to do the thing to then get the reward that you want. It's not, you don't get it after the reward. So then they sort of intersperse things that you don't find are very interesting with things you find very interesting so that you're like continually scrolling through. Because if they just gave you all the stuff that you wanted, it wouldn't have the same effect on the brain. So You're being manipulated. Of, uh, you're, you, are being, you are being manipulated. So yeah, there are many ways to sort of hack your way around that. It was a nice uh, episode of hum- the Human OS podcast uh, where they interviewed the guy who, who has a new book called Atomic Habits you know, one of his things he had for social media was that his assistant reset all his passwords on a Monday and then wouldn't give them back until Friday. So then, <laughs> so then, so then he wouldn't, so they wouldn't look at social media. So then you guys can reset each other's social media accounts. Oh my God, I'll do that for you. Do you know, on, on the iPhone now, um, I don't know if you got this, what? but I suppose the latest software is it pings up a notification with like a little mini report each week yeah and it tells you what you've been doing how much time you've been spending on it just go look at your facebook stat now no but mine's been down because now now that i'm aware right the last two weeks it's consistently gone down he he, he'll do he'll do social media on the loo like when he's basically having a number two he'll be answering queries on facebook and that is multitasking (laughs) that is finest that's the worst example you could have given (laughs) i'm yet to do a client consultation on the loo though yeah (laughs) Skype call. That'd be so mad. You Skype me, to be fair. Yeah, that's fine. But, um, well, I've answered the odd call, and you're a bit like, oh, God, is it like really echoey in here? Is it like a dead giveaway that I'm in in the toilet? (laughs) I was going to say, do you think at any point, I know there's more points that we want to cover, but when I, when you said about the, what was it you called it? Jomo, joy of missing out. Yeah. I think about a lot of uh, my kind of school friends, university friends who some of them are not interested in, in this side of thing at all. They're just out there having families, careers, you know, enjoying themselves. And they're not excessive in any way, but 
Um, I always kind of wonder if we were both, if we were to have like like my biomarkers versus theirs, I think I'd be less healthy. And I'm the one that's ordering, you know, the organic veg box and doing all my uh-huh. walking and stuff. But because I, you, you come to kind of know so much as well that you then start to feel that kind of pressure. And I, I just kind of wonder if at some point, is there anything out of the things that you mentioned in your talk that you think... It's like a, a hierarchy that you're establishing kind of in your head in terms of where people need to focus first, or is it, I suppose it's quite personal or individual really? Yeah, it's difficult. I, I think probably the most important thing, if you had to, you know, the, the, there's probably going to be a difference between what's going to make a difference to your like physiology right now versus what's going to make a difference in the long term. But the stuff that I, that I finished the talk on was you know, it was love and, and purpose and, and meaning and social connection. Actually, meaning is slightly better than purpose. But, you know, so social connections with other people, you know, meaningful family and friend interactions and meaning in your life such that there is something that you exist for, you find meaning. And it could be literally anything, right? What has meaning to me doesn't necessarily have meaning to you guys. And it's, it's a very personal thing. But having meaning in your life is probably one of the most protective things. Um, and some people call it meaning. Some people call it purpose. There is a little bit of difference between the two. But you know, we, there's no point in really getting semantic about it. They essentially have the same outcome. And if you have those, you are protected against a whole host of stuff, even social isolation. If you, have, if you have a purpose or there is still meaning in your life despite being social isolated, you don't have the downsides of, of social isolation. But if you cover both of those, I think... You know, that's going to be incredibly protective in the long term. After that, um, I think sleep and circadian rhythm are probably going to be your big ticket ones. So I, I was interviewed on a podcast uh, on Friday. And, uh, you know, this guy has been using some of the tools that we have, the blood chemistry calculator, looking at, you know, his blood tests. And he works really hard in terms of his diet quality and all this other kind of stuff. But, you know, still doesn't look great in terms of his biomarkers. And then freely admits that he's awake staring at a bright white computer screen at two o'clock in the morning and it's like all the other stuff you're doing is essentially a waste of time if you if you you know don't have don't get exposed to light when it's light and dark when it's dark you know that literally rules everything there's a guy who i mean i've actually stopped following him because he was doing my head in um and i've been i've been having i've been having a quite a good social media clear out lately and where i'm like if you don't add any value to my day by viewing your profile or your posts i'm like i'm just going to unfollow you like why why? because there was it started to get really silly because he was trying to pretty much go against everything you've just said and he was (laughs) he was quoting studies and all of this garbage about how you know you don't need as much sleep as you think you need the body can survive on blah 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 but then this guy and because i always say that you can tell a lot by someone you can tell a lot about someone by the state of their face. And, <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, let me, let me be clear. I don't mean like state of the face. looks as in, you know, because, you know, uh, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder and all that. But yeah, people's skin, you know, like the, like the bags under their eyes, yeah, their yeah. complexion, like, and, and this guy, I mean, don't get me wrong, from the neck down, he was ripped, you know, had yeah. the, the kind of Insta physique that everyone it's wants. Just- what is but, it? Body off Baywatch, face off crime watch. Oh, yeah. Face off crime watch. Yeah. <laughs> but facially, he looked absolutely haggard. 
He looked 15 years older than he actually says that he is. Maybe he's lying. He just looked tired. He looked exhausted. His, his face just looked like he hadn't slept for a week. Yet he's almost trying to use his physique to go, oh, you know, but look, at you know, I do this, I do that. But then, you know, it turns out he was, um, he was like a on like testosterone therapy therapy and all this yeah, other his stuff. body start making testosterone because he's not sleeping. Yeah, and smoke. then you're like, this is absolutely outrageous. And obviously, you know, I didn't need much more to unfollow this guy. But it's it's interesting how, I can't even remember why I... You, you were going to say that I have a really good looking face and then I mean, yeah, I mean obviously about. you are, you know, yeah. just a picture of health. I mean, just look at that glow. If what, only our listeners could see. What, what I was going to say, Tom, is can you explain um, some of the reasons why circadian rhythm is so important? Because, again, our, our I just kind remembered of, my point. You've got to wait now. Damn it. Our, our parents even don't, you know, we, we tell our parents to go to bed earlier now and they're, they're like, oh, but we can stay up till midnight. We're retired, you know, and, 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 you know, even things like blue blocking glasses, they think we're crackers. So can you explain yeah. from a, in terms of the physiology to everyone out there why it is so important and why it's so kind of important when, from a disease prevention point of view as well? It's difficult to, to boil it down, but it's basically everything your body does is on a, is on a rhythm. And I mean that in terms of when uh, genes are activated such that they produce proteins that then run certain processes. You know, the majority of cells in the body have some kind of inherent rhythm, the circadian rhythm. And they are better at doing different jobs at different times of the day. And the most important thing is that they do their sort of metabolic and I guess anabolic processes when it's light. And you know, your body is 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 best able to deal with both uh, caloric and uh, carbohydrate intake earlier in the day. So after it's been resting for a period of time, and then it's best at doing uh, these reparative processes, which is basically cleaning house and you know dealing with the damage that can occur during the day when you're running these metabolic processes. It's best at doing that at night. And there's some great uh, data on things like being exposed to light at night seems to increase the risk of skin cancers because you're still exposing the skin to that light, which can cause damage to the cells, but then you're doing it at the time when those cells should be repairing, which then increases the risk of skin cancers because they're not getting a chance to repair. Pretty much any job or lifestyle that involves the, I guess, abnormal is not the right word, but which involves disrupted circadian rhythm, so night shifts, swing shifts, uh, those are pretty universally in- associated with increased risk of obesity, type of diabetes, heart disease, multiple types of cancer. And a lot of that is because you're asking the body to do something that it's not supposed to do at the time that it's not supposed to do it. So, And there are two really important sides of that. So it's light during the day, which starts the clock, and then it's darkness at night. And you need both. So it's not just a case of blue blockers at night. You need to also be exposed to bright light during the day to help time those clocks. And if you are exposed to bright light during the day, that decreases uh, the negative impacts of light at night. But most people, so like right now, I'm inside my office at home and I'm probably being exposed to two or 300 lux would be my guess. And that's not nearly enough. I probably need about 10 times that at least to help set my circadian rhythm. So at some point soon after this podcast, I should go out on my deck. And even though it's a slightly cloudy day in Seattle in uh, November, you know, that will 
that will be enough light to help me uh, time my clock. So that's really important. And then, the, you know, the other side, you know, the darkness at night is really important. And darkness at night, so the reason why we wear blue blue blockers is because largely because of melatonin production. So blue light suppresses the production of melatonin, which is what sensitizes those circadian rhythms. And it's, it's an antioxidant. Um, it has some anti-cancer effects. So if we're not making any of that, you know, there's certainly going to be some negative side effects of that. It helps time the, uh, the sort of the metabolic calorie dealing side of things. So it's interesting because melatonin actually suppresses insulin production. So if you're having, um, if you're eating late at night and you're having and everybody will have some melatonin production, even if it's not optimal, that will decrease the amount of insulin that your pancreas releases. And there's some genetic mutations in the melatonin receptor in the pancreas that affect the magnitude of this effect. However, you get much larger blood sugar spikes at night in general if you eat late uh, because uh, you have melatonin floating around the system. So that means you should be doing most of your eating during the day when it's light. Let me just stop there. there. I'm just sort of aware I might be able to sell blue blockers to my mum here. Are you saying that if you had your blue blockers on and had to eat a little bit late, it would actually in terms of a body composition, it would help or if, as in your insulin response to that meal or not really? No. So if you had your blue blockers on, you should be producing more melatonin, which will suppress insulin. So for a given meal, you'll probably have a larger blood glucose response. The alternative is that you sell the early stuff. So light exposure earlier during the day, food earlier during the day, and on the studies that exist so far, that early time-restricted feeding, basically eating when it's light and not eating when it's dark, those have shown more beneficial effects in terms of body composition. So sell it that way. And I was going to say, with, with age, surely the need for everything that you've just mentioned. So should the need for, for kind of deeper, longer sleep, as in even longer sleep, increase with age? Because what we tend to find, I've got lots of clients who are kind of 60 plus, and they're sleeping less. So they're sleeping six hours, many of them going to bed at midnight, getting up at six. And they, they kind of say they feel fine, but obviously they've come to see me, so they're not, they're not completely fine. <laughs> but is that more probably related to poor kind of dysfunction? They can't stay asleep because of, again, either liver health, not fueling themselves, whatever it might be? Or There's a few things. There's, there's, a, there's a possibility that you, that you need less. There's decreased melatonin production as we get older. And you need, you know, melatonin doesn't necessarily increase the length of sleep, but increases, but increases the quality of sleep, uh, particularly. And then also as your brain starts to degenerate, uh, the prefrontal cortex, where you start off most of your slow wave sleep, uh, the slow waves are generally generated in that area, you know, that, that as that starts to degenerate over time, and you see this particularly in, in Alzheimer's, but obviously there's a there's a continuum, then, you know, you obviously become less good at initiating slow wave sleep because that part of the brain, the health of that part of the brain is starting to decline. So uh, there's like multiple parts of that, but obviously ensuring adequate melatonin production. So maybe supplementing with some melatonin, certainly worth thinking about. It doesn't need to be in, in the, uh, I know you have to get it on prescription in the UK. You can basically, they sell it like Smarties in the it's US. Like, yeah, it's in the airports and everything, isn't it? <laughs> The doses that that you get in most things over here are probably far too much. You know, it's like one to ten uh, milligrams when you probably need you know a fraction of that at least to start with. And and you also again uh, there's a genetic interaction between how much melatonin affects insulin, and it's the same in terms of then blood sugar the next day. So some people who take big big doses of melatonin if they are uh, genetically susceptible to it will then have some blood sugar dysregulation issues the next morning. They'll have higher blood glucose the, the next morning because they've really suppressed their insulin production. So 
you know, that's, that's, you know, to, but measuring your blood sugar in the morning isn't hard for people to do. So you can titrate your, your melatonin dose that way. So that, that's part of it. Then doing things that are going to increase uh, the temperature of the brain, which will then cause a reflexive increase in deep sleep or slow wave sleep. So exercise, maybe even thinking. So like some kind of cognitive engagement that, you know, people are, are thinking about that. And then, you know, there's stuff like uh, hot baths, uh, you know, so anything that increases core body temperature, increases brain temperature, and then you get a re- reflexive increase in, in a slow wave sleep at night. So things that get your brain going and body going uh, will then also improve sleep. But you may need a little bit of help as well, just because, you know, over time, people, people start to make less melatonin. What's your um, thoughts on vitamin D at night as well? I've seen that recommended as a, a kind of sleep support. Yeah, so there's one very famous sleep supplement, which I actually do sometimes use myself, and I think it does a pretty good job. But one thing that the the guy who made it found is that a lot of people that he worked with were vitamin D deficient, and being vitamin D deficient affects sleep quality. So he was like, if I'm going to make a, a sleep supplement, I just want to have everything in one place. And you know, so the vitamin D comes with all the other things that support sleep, including a small amount of melatonin, and there's some uh, some GABA and some uh, 5-HTP. And the vitamin D uh, comes in there because just having multiple supplements, people are less likely to take it. So when you hear him talk about it, he says there's no evidence that vitamin D at night affects sleep. Now, you know, there's there's nothing hard. There's no hard evidence. A little bit of me says vitamin D should be being produced during the day. So that's kind of outside of what we'd expect for a normal circadian rhythm. So that sort of makes me pause just a little bit. There's no evidence behind it, but like I wonder. And then there's one study, but it was in, it was in people with multiple sclerosis. But there's one study where they looked at nighttime vitamin D supplementation, and it did worsen sleep quality. So there's a little bit to say that vitamin D at night probably isn't optimal. I have basically for our, for our clients, I've constructed as best that I can a sort of a sleep stack that includes everything else that you, you'd have in this one supplement. Uh, but without the vitamin D. And if you're vitamin D deficient, you should supplement, but you know, take that during the day. So yeah, it's not a perfect answer. And it maybe isn't an issue at all. But in some people, it may be an issue. I guess that, that's probably, it depends. That's my favorite <laughs> yeah. answer. It's interesting. No, because my thought was the same because, yeah, same really. I thought, well, surely we're exposed to vitamin D, so it would upset that kind of natural rhythm. But yeah. um, no, that makes sense. Did you have a question? No, no, I was just going to kind of say like, um, it's, it's 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 quite cool how much sleep is being spoken about now because i think before it was almost like well to be fair like many things it was always just like exercise nutrition that's what we need to worry about you know whereas now you know sleep and stress are very much they're up there aren't they they're they're kind of hot topics now and a lot of people are, are talking about them but i do think like stress is just uh, sleep sorry is just such a big one because you know, it's it's a lot easier for us, for example, to make conscious decisions to potentially help us have a good night's sleep. You know, when you are working with people that have got children, babies, you know, etc. Like our, our neighbours actually just uh, recently had a baby, got a little four-week-old, haven't they? And we just bumped into him on the dog walk and he was like, I'm just knackered. I just, I can't cope. It's a nightmare. Like he would genuinely look like, oh. Um, and as a so result. So he didn't have a great face. <laughs> his face was terrible. <laughs> it's a state, so your, state of your it. Your face is the right state, mate. Go and sort yourself out. 
no, and uh, but as a result, you know, and this is the thing, isn't it? It's it's that negative knock on effect. As a result, you know, they're they're too tired. They can't bother to cook. They're getting more takeaways, more convenience foods, and and it is that kind of knock on effect. And it's like, oh man. You know, you want to try your best to to because at the minute, you know, you can't really control the baby situation. You know, the baby's going to wake up as and when. But the nutrition side of things, as tough as it is, it is within your control. It's going to feel a little bit harder. It's going to require more effort. But I just feel that the sleep is such a such a catalyst for for this negative knock-on effect, isn't it? Or should I say lack of sleep? But also it affects it affects mood. Um, I have a lot of clients similar, and you know, who are new parents, and it's just more their mood, and they kind of say they end up snap, snapping at each other, and then it creates a kind of like negative energy in the household, and then it's just a, a big kind of happiness deficiency all round, and then people just want to have sugar to, you know, mm. just comfort eat, essentially. So... I suppose, Tommy, I was just going to say, when you take, you mentioned you take some supplements occasionally to help with sleep. What is it that you're, what causes you to need that? Is that just when you're traveling? So again, I don't think people also realize that you can kind of just dose in supplements every now and then just to kind of bridge a gap or because you found yourself, you know, working late or whatever. When were you, when do you kind of use support from supplements the most? Yes. So it's often um, on days when I haven't receive those really strong inputs so i talk about like if i haven't had a chance to be outside um early in the day and like received a really sort of strong input there i think that can certainly affect my sleep later in the day or you know sometimes it's, it's a little bit of uh, superstition on my part when i've uh, had a few days when i haven't you know i've had to get up early and we've gone to bed late because i've been working and you know we're much more protective of our sleep than than uh, maybe have been in the past. But, you know, sometimes I'll just be, you know, I want to really make sure that I'm going to get into bed. I've, you know, made enough melatonin and I'm going to be asleep. And so I'll take a, you know, I'll, I'll take a bit of something just to sort of make sure that process really happens because that's going to, you know, it's going to be a night where I have enough time to be in bed. I don't have to be up early. I'm going to bed at a decent time. And just sort of like make sure that it happens. Um, and that seems to work really well for me. And, you know, Maybe again, it's a bit superstitious, but is there, what's the downside of me taking a bit of melatonin? You know, really isn't any at all. And I've certainly no, haven't noticed any effects on my, on my blood sugar the next morning because I, I look at that fairly frequently. So, you know, sometimes I just sort of try and shore that up to make sure that on a night when I can get a good night of sleep, I will. But do I always need it? Probably not, uh, but I don't do it that often. Are there any other ways that you do? Do you ever try and out supplement any, any bad habits? Do you have any bad habits? Of course he does. <laughs> Do I try and outside? No, not, not, not really. I don't really take that many supplements. I take a multivitamin. I have a protein shake after I go to the gym, which I put creatine in. And sometimes I'll take some stuff before I go to sleep. Some stuff. <laughs> he just oh, yeah. he so just winked yeah, yeah, so Sometimes I use sometimes I use sleep remedy, which is that thing that we were, that that supplement we were talking about. Sometimes I will take a bit of melatonin. I, I, I tried melatonin. We brought some back the last time we went to the States, which was a few years ago now. And um, I would, I, I get, I wouldn't just like take it daily. You know, it was like uh, when I felt like I just needed it. But what I found was um, I, I felt, even I was getting to sleep better, I was really struggling um, to actually come to in the mornings. I felt really like it, Yeah, so it, it's probably because you're taking those massive doses so so what i have is um is a, is a melatonin spray and you're supposed to take 
six sprays to get three milligrams. I just take one spray, so that's half a milligram. That's, that's more than enough for most people. So that's the best. That's the best way to do it. Get as a dropper or a spray, and they'll suggest you take a lot more. But obviously, it's in your power to take a lot less rather than taking tablets. Yeah, but we we had a five milligram one, I think. From <laughs> I'm sure it's I gave him loads. two. That's <laughs> loads. Yeah, it's, it's way more than most people need. Yeah. Definitely. So I was just going to say, could you um, kind of end by summarising? Well, I think again, what people don't realise, even though it is in some of the media headlines across the world at the moment, is can you confirm that it is possible to reverse um, chronic disease? all chronic diseases or chronic disease processes and that's heart disease so that's you know atherosclerosis you're getting plaque in your arteries type 2 diabetes um you know or is there some way you kind of you know think well no i'm gonna let you answer the question can you confirm that you can reverse chronic disease uh yes (laughs) thanks for coming on the show (laughs) (laughs) so you know it's uh it's tricky because um one thing that we are very loath to do is to undo a medical diagnosis or remove a, a prescription or a medication, particularly if somebody else has prescribed it. You know, it's just a, it's a very it's a very tricky thing to do, and it, it's it's going to be really difficult for somebody who was previously diagnosed with type two diabetes to then you know have a doctor say, "Well, you don't have type two diabetes anymore." Uh, but if you go by the diagnostic criteria, um, where you know particularly in terms of blood sugar control, so HbA1c and, uh, and fasting or postprandial blood sugar, all of those can, can go into it. There are plenty of people, thousands, who have brought their blood sugar back under control below diabetic cutoffs with dietary and, and lifestyle interventions. So some, some places will say they can reverse type diabetes. Uh, there's a group uh, in Newcastle who do it with a, a period of a very low calorie diet. And that affect, you know, that sort of changes uh, fat deposition, particularly in the pancreas, which affects um, insulin production and the pancreas, which is a big part of type 2 diabetes. They can probably say that they can reverse type diabetes depending on how you diagnosed it. Again, with those blood sugar levels, I think you can safely say that you get to a point where, you know, your, your blood sugars are no longer in that, at that level. The question then becomes, are you then able to eat a more mixed diet? So some people have to do that by extreme calorie or carbohydrate restriction or fat restriction. Actually, if you, if you do the sort of the extreme ends of any of those, you can, you can usually see some benefit. Are you then able to add some of those things back in and respond to them normally like somebody with normal metabolic health would? And that's a question that not many people are willing to answer because they're just happy that their blood sugar is in a good spot and they don't want to worry about it and they don't want to add stuff back in and that's that's fine but if you do do something like that and you um, are then able to add back in so add back in other foods so if you had type 2 diabetes and you either went on a calorie restricted or fat restricted or carbohydrate restricted diet you brought your blood sugar under control if you're then able to add back in the things that you restricted and you still have normal blood sugar i would say that you've reversed type 2 diabetes and there are plenty of people you know there are plenty of people who've done that heart disease is slightly harder uh, because atherosclerosis doesn't really go away. So, you, you know, it, it can certainly stabilize. It can become calcified and less likely to less likely to then cause an actual heart attack. You can track it with things like a coronary artery calcium score. And we have seen those scores regress with people who sort of like take a re- really good look at their diet and lifestyle. That doesn't guarantee that we've 
reverse their heart disease. I think heart disease is a difficult one to say that you've sort of reversed it, but we think we've dramatically, you know, slowed down the process or maybe even stopped the process as much as we could and shored up um, anything bad that was happening uh, during that period of time. Alzheimer's disease. Dale Bredesen has certainly presented enough cases of people who've significantly both halted and reversed their cognitive decline um, to say that, yes, I think that that's a reversible process as long as you find out what it is that's causing issues for that specific person. And that is going to depend from person to person, be it toxic exposures or type 2 diabetes or type 3 diabetes, as some people call sometimes about Alzheimer's disease or stress and sleep deprivation, all that stuff. If you can remove the, the causes then I think that you can reverse a lot of the, the problems causing uh, being caused there. But again, um, the earlier you intervene, the more likely you are to see improvements or reversal. Um, you know, if you have end stage disease, it's going to be pretty hard to, to, to see much of a benefit there. So all of those things, you know, we're told are uh, terminal, chronic, progressive conditions. But there are examples of each where by addressing lifestyle factors and addressing the environment, you can see reversal in them. So it's not necessarily easy. It's not necessarily going to work for everybody, but we have a good idea of what we can do for a lot of people to see those diseases reverse. So yeah, I, I think you can reverse or cure uh, most chronic diseases depending, you know, as long as you find out what the underlying issues were and you are able to intervene early enough. And many, and just to add as well, many of them are linked generally, aren't they? Because they all follow very similar kind of inflammatory processes or insulin is involved. So once you have one, your risk of another, you know, I, I don't, obviously I'm a nutritional therapist, so I'm not allowed to actually diagnose or even discuss disease itself. So I just talk about function instead. Yeah. Um, and when yeah. uh, I have a lot of clients who go and see a gastroenterologist for, for one condition and then a cardiologist for another, and it's like various different inflammatory processes. And, and I'm kind of saying they are linked and... <laughs> Their specialists are saying they're not linked in any way. There's no way your symptoms yeah. are linked. And I'm like, yes, they are. <laughs> so we just have this back and forth. But I just think it's important for people to realise that I just kind of say it's a lack of function or it's an immune-driven process that's going on. And, and it's great that you've just outlined some key things that people can do because they're often not aware of those, are they? No. In our, in our experience. Tell me, I've got, I've got one last question, mate, before we say ta-ra. Um, yeah. I think the answer might be quite quick. What's your views but on... But first of all, how long did you spend on Facebook today? We didn't get to the bottom of that. Today? Yeah. I don't know about today. I saw two and a half hours. That's not... No, no, no. So... Two and a half hours per day? Yeah, not on Facebook. Oh. It's on my phone. So I'm, I'm down 49% from last week. So you're straight on the negative, aren't you? Social networking, nine hours a week. It's nine hours a week. I'm just listing all the things you're yeah. supposed to have done last week that you didn't. And yeah, you know, nine hours on. Yeah, but we media. run an online business. There's got to be an element of understanding. <laughs> no, I'm 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 very lucky because the if we get contacted on on various platforms that the we have a I have Elaine and Tammy who are our admin like our admin whizzes who do a lot of that for me. So it makes my life. I get to avoid some of that stuff. Gosh, I was going to. I don't know what mine will be. I'm going to check what mine is. But it's down forty nine percent. That's 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 a pretty good reduction that in my good, in my opinion. So what um, yeah. yeah, what's your views on CBD oil? <laughs> yeah, because it's um, obviously I, like it's like the it's the, it's that's the, the in thing at the moment. Isn't it, it is yeah. especially it's, for chronic diseases. It's so well, 2018. Yeah, is it is it legal over there? You can get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in Holland the Barrett. Get now. it everywhere, literally. <laughs> so the one thing with that is that when they've tested. Uh, the USDA over here 
tested a load of CBD products. And obviously, there's a fine line because it, your CBD product at some point probably had some THC in it, and you're definitely not allowed to have THC in there in most places. So What's they ended THC? up not having Sorry? A te- a tetrahydrocannabinol. That's the active component of. Because uh, I've had yeah. one person feedback. I don't recommend it. I, in the student clinics I work at, one person fed back. They did used to uh, smoke cannabis and, and felt a similar reaction to it. But only one out of everybody I've ever. So some companies so worried about extracting all the, the THC, um, then if you look at the product, the T- CBD product, there's actually no CBD in there um, because you've basically extracted everything and there's, it's just, it's just a, an inert carrier and you're not really taking anything useful. So there's loads of really interesting stuff about it. So we um, do recommend it to some people who have some uh, IB, IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, there's definitely enough evidence in... Uh, rodent models to make me think that it's worth trying and we've certainly seen some benefit there may also benefit some people with ibs some some gut inflammation it certainly seems to to calm things down what about things like it's chronic pain you know kind of when it's almost no yeah so most of most of the pain studies and and most of the sleep support studies suggest that you need to take thc with your with your cbd so then it it needs to be something like sativex um, or similar which has a combination of cbd and thc people can get that prescribed but it's not something you can buy from Hollander Barrett. It's the same for a lot of the sleep studies. Um, although a small dose of CBD I've tried before bed and actually it works very well for me, uh, but much, much smaller than they've used in the literature because if they, if you use bigger doses, so like if I take something like, like 15 milligrams, if you use like 300 milligrams that can actually worsen sleep. So it's a bit of a, you know, requires a little bit of titration in terms of dose. So may help with sleep. And then there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of information on things like uh epilepsy and stuff like that so i have a a, a guy who was a postdoc in my lab and i was doing my phd he uses he, he's a head of pediatric neurology in ljubljana the capital of slovenia and the pediatric hospital there and they use massive doses of cbd for kids with epilepsy and it has an anti-epileptic effect it's very i mean much much bigger than most people would be able to afford it's thousands of milligrams but so has some benefit there so lots of different things that it could be beneficial for um so yeah, overall, uh, pretty positive, depending on what it is you're. But 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 some. But it's worth bearing in mind that some of the research suggests that the benefit comes from combining CBD and THC, and CBD on its own may not have that effect. There is talk uh, over here, though, isn't there, of um, being able to get marijuana on prescription? You know, like a, medicinal marijuana. I've just seen a petition go around about it, though, and um, uh, it, it's it, NHS have withdrawn it somewhere, and the really? petition's gone around, yeah, to to help uh, someone with epilepsy actually. Yeah. Um, it's change.org just sent this big uh, it's interesting though isn't it I remember seeing a video of this guy with uh, quite severe Parkinson's and they gave him some marijuana and he just transformed him like right in front of your very eyes like filming him and he just couldn't believe it and like he, even he was like the look on his face like he got quite emotional because he was just like oh my god like I, I've never I can't remember the last time I I felt like this. He, he, you wouldn't think he had Parkinson's. But he went from shaking severely, his hands were all over the place, and he was in such like grimacing, almost in pain, to just like being just very relaxed and talking, having a normal conversation. And you just think, wow, you can't ignore that. No, no, no. I'm not I, saying I, like I, everyone I, should I just don't like. Actually think, but I don't think anyone you can get it here prescribed. You can get it in America. You're saying prescribed on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it the laws depend from state to state, but most people get a, a, a medical prescription. Uh, but they've just the tenth state in the U.S. just legalized marijuana, so you can go and get it 
get it wherever you want and they just legalize it in Canada as well. So. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. Watch this space. But just to reiterate, when, when not, you say, not all brands are equal when it comes to the product. Yeah, that. so you have to be really careful. So there are basically two brands that, that we trust over here, Lixanol and Charlotte's Web. Um, and they give you any company. And, th- you know, we're at a point now where basically if you start recommending a supplement to somebody, you or they should be able to contact the company and say, I want a certificate of analysis to say, A, that this has what it says it has in it, and B, that it doesn't have any contaminants in it and you know and so so we're we're as strict on that as as, as we can be charlotte's web is one of my favorite books as a kid so i was gonna say <laughs> like i'm gonna go book. i'm gonna go with that one <laughs> awesome well tommy thank you once again for giving up your uh your your valuable time to to speak to us is seattle proper cold now uh yeah we've had uh a few mornings of frost the last week, so it's starting it's starting to cool down. But it's been pretty it's been pretty uh, clear, so that's been nice. You get you get snow now, like as in was it extreme change for you weather wise? Um, yeah, so we were actually we were out hiking or we went for a hike on Saturday morning and just driving like an hour outside of town and then hiking a bit up into the mountains. There was snow, uh, but you don't get much. Um, you don't get much snow in the in the city. Oh. Have you ever been to the uh, first ever Starbucks? Yeah, a couple of times. <laughs> it's, 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 that's the, the first ever Seattle, isn't it? Yeah, that's where it started. Yeah. Um, I only know, I only said it because uh, someone else I know put up on Facebook the other day that they were in Seattle and they went there and just said it was absolute chaos. It's so busy. Oh yeah, the 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 queue is ridiculous. Like it's 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 one of those things that I th- you know if you're somebody who's into coffee or whatever is it's worth it's worth going it's an experience but you will spend an hour in the queue to get the same coffee that you get around the corner another starbucks it's just for instagram let's be honest yeah exactly but that area pike pike place market down by you know if you watch uh gray's anatomy that's where the uh the ferry crashed in the infamous episode um oh, and, spoiler uh, alert. You know, <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah spoiler alert from like 10 years ago um and uh aren't they doing a, a new series now oh i literally have no idea i haven't watched it since i was in i haven't watched it since i was in med school i'm, but, not, I'm loving that when i ended the podcast with all things to do with seattle yeah. i'm trying to think of other things yeah it's great but around that you know the food's awesome like there's a market there they, you know they have like all the fresh seafood and and stuff it's uh yeah it's so it's a it's a if you if you come to seattle you should definitely go to do that you, area it's do like you think you're healthier in america than you were in the uk I know you've got a different lifestyle, but as in generally... Do you well, he was in Norway, really. Oh, yeah, you were. Right, yeah. Well, I was only in Norway for three years. But yes, uh, definitely on, on all accounts. But so, so part of it is that it's definitely easier for me to get uh, access to quality food. And it's probably improved... I mean, I haven't lived in the UK since 2013 now. It's probably easier there now than it was back then or also i was just so busy that i never really thought about thought about it that much um but easy access to to really high quality stuff is is um is one of the bonuses of, of being in america so there's a lot you know the the average food quality in the u.s is the worst of anywhere i've lived but it's also easier to get hold of the good stuff if if that's what you're interested in um but apparently um, uh the bacon in seattle is pretty poor though so I've heard. I thought American bacon generally was poor, though, wasn't it? Isn't it? Uh, no, I get some pretty great bacon. Ooh, who's I? your dealer? Who's your dealer? <laughs> so I, I get a lot of my um, meat from US Wellness Meats, and there's like grass-fed, like 100% grass-fed beef, and then they have a 
they have some bacon, some like uncured bacon, which is ridiculous. It's really good. A friend of ours who's in who's in Seattle, um, she says that she gets friends whenever they go over to Canada to bring back bacon. Uh, no, so Canadian bacon's like back bacon. That's nobody should eat that. Streaky or nothing. Oh, they, no, are they what, love yeah, it. No, that's like, what's wrong with the, that's yeah, what's wrong with American that, bacon. Yeah, that, but that's that's what they I love, don't, like don't the they? Why do I have streaky? Curious likes back because bacon. it's literally because it's like a million times better than back back bacon is no 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 it's terrible. It gets kind of like semi hard, and then the fat doesn't really crisp enough, and it's a bit soggy. No way, streaky or nothing, streaky or dead. To, to be fair, I would. You know, I do love streaky, but I do like back bacon as well. Because that's what I consider proper bacon is back bacon. bacon. Yeah, Uh, American bacon's better. Sorry. But that's (laughs) good properly as well. Right, let's wrap it up. Tommy, like I said, thank you once again, mate. Always a pleasure. Um, No doubt it won't be the last, I'm sure. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. As always, leave us a review if you haven't done so already. Subscribe to the podcast, share away, spread the love, and we will see you in episode 113. Thank you very much, Tommy, and see ya. Bye. Bye.